You are listening to the Tenth Men podcast, where we discuss the ideas, theories, and principles to help you live a wealthy, healthy, and happy life. My name is Harish, and I'm a third-year medical student. And my name is Felix. I'm a graduate entry medical student and content creator. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another brand new podcast of the Tenth Men. This is your co-host Harish here. and i'm also joined by our other co-host felix say hi felix hi felix <laughs> okay and today's topic is going to be a brand new topic that we had actually promised earlier this was about the medical sub series we'll be talking about our medical journey on how we got into medicine but before that you got to know a bit about ourselves so felix can you tell us on how you actually got into medicine like just the basic layout yeah so the basic application process in medicine is essentially the same for undergraduate and graduate medicines the two differences that you need to understand is that undergraduate medicine you do when you're around 18 and graduate medicine you can only apply to if you've already done a degree beforehand or a masters or a phd etc etc so you're a graduate already now in my case i applied to the graduate course and in harish's case he's applied to the under grad the main differences are in the undergrad course it's a 5 year degree and in the graduate course it's a 4 year degree okay so essentially you don't lose a year right okay they don't just skip a year what they do is they squeeze year 1 and 2 into 1 year so that makes the graduate course 4 years it's called the accelerated scheme so those are the two main differences and the last difference is, is funding in the undergraduate course you have to pay a lot more than the graduate course and along with that comes a lot of different factors like competition etc we'll get we'll get into that so in my case right now i went through the classic ucat ucas process and then applied and then warwick interviewed and now i'm about to head there this september how about you harish well as he said it's pretty much the same layout first i have to choose which university i want to go to and then i have to do the ucat exam or when i did it it was known as a ukcat exam right now just called university clinical aptitude test and after you get that test to just as he said go through ucas but before we jump into these felix how did you actually feel about applying to medicine because i think we need to set the mood for this entire episode Yeah, I thought I just saw it as a process essentially it's just filled with hoops that people have to jump through and it's a process if you know how to get through it you kind of just do one hoop after the other i didn't really feel too stressed out or anything it was just calm basically for me on the other hand i was both excited and a bit anxious i would guess because you know once you have to apply for the university and then after that you have to wait for them to get back to you i would say for me it was pretty stressful because i didn't know what the outcome was going to be so right. for me it was a bit of both fun because you know finally i get to do medicine but at the same time i was also mm. stressed by it now moving on i think felix would have a bit more expertise in this could you tell us about how you actually you know chose the university yes yeah, so as harris said the application process sort of has its ups and downs it's a roller coaster especially when they give out the offers when you go for interviews etc but it all starts off with navigating the university admissions process right so the first thing you do is you do your research you figure out what university you want to go to now i'll start off from the graduate level in that when you go for it it's incredibly incredibly important that you understand 
understand the requirements of each medical school. You don't want to shoot yourself in the foot because I don't know the statistics on this, but every single year, a handful of medical students will apply to universities that before they even apply, they're not eligible for. They may do that on purpose, but there's a, quite a few of medical students just do that because they didn't research the university as well. So when you navigate university admissions, just type in medicine, uni rankings, graduate medicine, if you're going for that, figure out what sort of universities you want to go to, get a spreadsheet, write down the key details like work experience, UCAT score, degree considerations, do you need a 2-1 or a 1st? What about A-level considerations, personal statement? Does it matter about your personal statement or do they not look at it? Interview types, is it MMI or is it panel? And places, places is very important, especially when you get to graduate level because, for example, in Newcastle, you've got 25 places, but in Oxford, you've got 40. And lastly, you need to look at cohort type and admissions testing. So by admissions testing, what does the university need? A UCAT, a BMAT, or at the graduate level, some universities like Nottingham, they take the GAMSAT and cohort type. It's also very important. One of the reasons why I picked Warwick was because it's a completely graduate cohort. I think Swansea is the same as well, but not all of them are like this. So you need to check what sort of cohort you'll be in. Along with that, you have finances. So the differences between grad and undergrad is that in graduate medicine, you pay tuition from your own money around 3,500 or so from first year. And then the rest of the years are sort of covered by a combination of NHS grants and student loan. Now, the top tip for applying in graduate medicine is that it is a lot, lot more competitive, right? That's why some graduates will decide to go through the undergraduate degree process rather than the graduate medicine because of how competitive it is. And because of that, you kind of have to make sure that you tick all the boxes and you have to go to a deeper level of preparation. Was that the same for undergrad? So as Felix said, I think undergraduate application process is pretty similar. Just a few bits and changes for me, especially because I'm an international student. So this is how it went for me, at least. So when I first applied to medicine or when I decided, first, what I had to do was look up the Singapore Medical Council because I'm from Singapore. And then I had to see the approved universities by the Singapore Medical Council or otherwise known as SMC, basically. And from there, then I chose which university I have to go for. So basically what I did was whatever information I said, I just put it into an Excel sheet. So on one side, I have all the approved universities by Singapore Medical Council, column one university name. Column two would be subject requirements and UCAT requirements. And column three would be the number of years of study because, you know, some in some universities in London, they offer a six-year program rather than a five-year program because I think in one of the years, they offer an intercalation, which is compulsory in some universities. So you've got to keep that in mind. And column four will be about fees. How much would you have to pay? Because once again, it varies from university to university. And column five will be rankings. I will be honest, I personally personally didn't do it because no matter which university you graduate from, you are in the end a GMC certified doctor. But if you're really, really interested, I want to go to the best university and whatnot, I would advise you to look at forums because, you know, rather than looking at online reviews by uh, your newspaper articles, forums are much more down to the earth because they are written by students by fellow medical graduates so they, their opinions would be much more valued that's what I personally feel so I did look at a couple of forums but it wasn't really a big fact in my mind because as an international student the bigger concerns are for me are the fees and the number of years of study so those are the two things I looked out for and one more thing I did look out for is another uh, safety net university so in the entire UCAS portal you get to apply for four medical degrees and as for your fifth choice you have to choose a non-medical degree 
So when you choose that fifth choice, you got to be careful because if you're really, really interested in medicine, try to choose a degree that allows you to transfer into medicine. For example, right now I'm studying in Newcastle. So let's say I didn't get into Newcastle. What I would have done is applied for a Newcastle biomed degree or a pharmacology degree or a pharmacy degree that would allow me to transfer from pharmacy to medicine in like in year two, or even it could be the best case scenario rather, after you finish your three years, you get to apply to medicine again uh, through the postgraduate degree program. And maybe you might have some uh, kind of credibility because you did graduate from the same university. So that's kind of my entire process on how I handle the choosing of university. For me, that was kind of the biggest headache because I had to take into like the financial details and account because some universities are really, really expensive. So yeah. Yeah, no, I completely agree. I think with the graduate side of things, it's definitely all of that, except it's a bit more multiplied because when you think about graduate medicine, because you're paying some money out of pocket, you have to think, okay, if I apply to King's College London, for example, can I actually have enough savings saved up so that I can, you know, sort of survive through medical school while paying the fees? Because London is a very, very expensive area. Now, one of the best tips that I can give any graduates applying is to use very specific forums. One of the most important tips I can give graduate medical students is that you need to be extremely strategic, okay, due to that increased competition. Now, the way you can do this, one of the ways you can do this is to use freedom of information services. So essentially what they are is that every university has this email and there's a act called the Freedom of Information Act. And what this means is that if you ask the university through this email, and I think the regulations is like, as long as the work is under 20 hours, if you ask the universities, can I get anonymous information on the applicant cohort last year? And this information is extremely, extremely valuable. This will include things like, obviously, no names, nothing identifiable. But, you know, as long as the work is less than 20 hours, they'll tell you what were the UCAT scores of the applicants? Did they have a PhD? Did they have a master's? Because at graduate level, you're going up against, you know, full-on pharmacists, nurses, already graduates, people that have PhDs, etc. What were their degree classifications? And these aren't sort of speculations by random forums. These are actual data given to you by any universities. You just have to request them. You have to use this email or you just go on this, I think it's called What Do They Know? And they have a bunch of requests where people have already asked and you've already got the statistics. So be very, very strategic. Use the Freedom of Information Act to figure out exactly what their cutoff is or to predict what their cutoff is and how many people are admitted. And that will really help you figure out the truth from sort of the rumors. And it's very important at the graduate level because you have to be very careful about where you apply and you have to play to your strengths. And every single year, obviously, this changes, especially in the COVID situation. So double check all of this on their website. For example, when I applied, Imperial had, I think they'd, or Imperial or UCL, one of them had frozen their graduate scheme. So obviously it wasn't working anymore. And for example, St. George's and Sheffield have specific requirements for you to be eligible to apply to them. So be very careful about where you apply and play to your strengths. So now that we've gone through how to navigate university admissions and how to pick universities, how to track it, what to look at, let's think about the next hurdle, right? The dreaded UCAT, previously named the UK cat. Like any anyone who has done this will probably get like PTSD just from hearing this because this is a very tough exam. Harish, give us a rundown on uh, what what the UCAT is? Well, basically, the UCAT, or otherwise known as the UK CAT, is a clinical aptitude test. So there are various components to it. So I think there is a verbal reasoning, decision making, quantitative reasoning, abstract reasoning, situational judgment. Now it just seems like words, meaningless words to you. But we will get into that. 
but I think I need to talk about how I actually felt about this UCAT exam. For me personally, preparation-wise, it was mentally draining, absolutely mentally draining, because you really have to put in the work. And I would, I would say it's tough and tedious. Would you say the same for yourself, Felix? Yeah, I think it was definitely a tough exam. But even though it was mentally draining, when I was doing the UCAT, I was like working like eight to five in a research placement, and I came back home and I would work right on the UCAT stuff. So it was definitely Flex. something. <laughs> No, I mean, I'm just saying the thing is, that's the difference between graduate and undergraduates, right? Because with the graduates, you will have to be getting experiences. You'll have to be trying to get that extra bit to be competitive in this field because you're going up against a huge cohort. You know, when you're undergraduate, you're thinking 18-year-olds, 19-year-olds, etc. But when you're graduate level, you're thinking anyone, literally anyone can apply as long as they have the sufficient skills. So when I did the UCAT, even though it was mentally draining and you know, I've actually read some of the studies on whether UCAT scores correlate with, you know, medical success, and there is very little correlation. So I was just trying to think, you know, does this actually make sense? Why are they doing it? And the best explanation of it, and this is what I use to kind of motivate myself and justify why, you, why I have to do this. So I didn't really find it too bad. It was, this is your opportunity to show the medical school that you can ace or do well in a standardized exam. And that skill of being able to break down an exam, to figure out the techniques, learn and practice and become good at it is something you're going to be doing all the way through medical school, maybe all the way through your life because you have exams after medical school. So this is your chance to prove that to them. So even though maybe you don't think, okay, abstract reasoning isn't going to make me a good doctor, think of it that way. Think of it, this is your chance to prove to the medical school you can ace a standardized exam. When I thought of it like that, it wasn't too bad, but definitely the actual practice of it I sort of saw it as a game, you know, I was just like, you know what, let's, let's see how well I can do, you know, and I would just, you know, whack on the Medify, do some situational judgment or AR and just take it as a game. But it definitely is mentally draining because it's, it's unlike any test you've probably done before, unless you've done the 11 plus at an earlier age. Well, um, I think I just got to give a bit of background between each component. So basically, the first component will be verbal reasoning. Is I think similar to your English comprehension. They'll just give you a passage and MCQ question based off on it, if I'm not wrong. Choose the right answer. Followed by that would be a decision making. They would give you a passage. And the most common one is um, true or false kind of questions. So you got to choose which one is true or false. For me, in my year, I was the first year to do the decision making component. So I was kind of like the guinea pig batch. So <laughs> that was the downside for my badge, at least. And the next one was quantitative reasoning. That's basically mathematics. So if you're good with the calculator, you're pretty much good for that component. This is the next component is the only component that I kind of hated because it's called abstract reasoning, by the way. And it's where they give you loads of patterns, just pictures, and then you've got to figure out a pattern and then figure out what the next image is going to be. And if you, if you still do not know what I'm talking about, just Google it so that you can kind of get a rough idea of what I'm talking about. And followed by that would be situational judgment. This is where they would give you kind of a situation in a medical scenario and you've got to make kind of a right ethical decision. So most of it is pretty easy except, except abstract reasoning. That would require a bit of practice, but apart from that, it's manageable. But before I dive into like, you know, the preparation I think I'd just like to point out the way I prepared, basically. I mean, um, for Felix, he said he thought of it as a game. For me, it was a bit different because I was doing this alongside when I was in the army. So uh, I had <laughs> I had time 
to think about whether I want to do medicine. And I feel like this is something that kind of many people lack because most people in the UK rather, once they finish their A-levels, they are given the choice of applying for medicine or applying whichever degree they want. But for me, I had the liberty of choosing for two years. And that's why I would recommend people, if you're in the JC2, JC1 or in the 11th year, think about whether you want to apply medicine. Because for me, the, the two-year lag time allowed me to prepare for the entire UK CAT exam. I didn't prepare for two years, mm-hmm. but I did prepare for a year. Like Because I was working in the army, then as similar to Felix's situation, after eight to five job, I would come back home and then I would crack on with this uh, entire thing. Because the common problem I found in many people is that they were always in this conundrum because they would come to a situation where they realize they want to apply medicine just a few days before, a few weeks before the UCAS deadline. And they realize they have to do the UCAT exam. So they'll be thinking whether I should just wing it or should I actually even study for it. That's why I would recommend students, if you're a very young student still like about to do your A-levels, start thinking about whether you want to do uh, medicine because that would actually give you the extra time to prepare for this UCAT exam. Because I personally feel preparing UCAT exam way beforehand does give you an upper hand when you actually do the test. Yeah, no, I agree. I think you have to give yourselves time. Time is the only thing you can't control because you will hear these rumors where someone's like, oh, you'll pick too early, start four weeks in advance because that's the average time taken, etc." But everyone is different. Everyone struggles with different things and you don't want to be not having enough time to be the reason you didn't get into medical school. On the graduate side of things, the UCAT is probably one of the most vital, if not the most vital, factor in determining whether or not you'll be invited to interview. The thing is most most graduate medicine courses will require you to get a 2-1 and the UCAT is really the thing that they use to shortlist for the interviews. Now this is where again your university research really comes in because some universities who have extremely high UCAT scores, for example, Kings and Newcastle, they have very high UCAT scores, much higher than the undergraduate cutoff, by the way. So if you're applying for graduate, graduate cutoff will be much higher. And obviously it changes year upon year, depending on the national averages, depending on the applicant averages. Again, if you use the Freedom of Information Act, you can find all of this out at least as recent as the statistics go. Now, the other thing to realize is whether or not the UCAT cutoff is high or low, it is normally balanced out by another factor. So for example, if you think about Warwick, okay, they may not require as high cutoffs as Newcastle or Kings, but they need a VR score. They tend to focus on that. And also you need to get 70 hours of work experience, including hands-on care. So you really need to use your research, play to your strengths, depending on whatever score you get in the UCAT. Now, Harish also discussed sort of the way he prepared for it. For me, again, I had limited time I had to be very, very efficient with my preparation. And the way I sort of went about it was reflecting on it. There were three T's that I had to master. I like to call them triage, technique, and timing. We're not going to go into super detail in this episode, maybe a different episode, because this is, you know, we can talk all day about this. But the brief overview is that when you prepare, it's really, really important to understand that no one, okay, not me or some different course can teach you how to be the very best at UCAT. Because I've seen many companies sort of saying, oh, look, this is someone who went to the course, they've got very high grades, and they'll sort of imply that they can get you there. But that's probably not true. Don't get me wrong here, because they can teach you how to be good at it, but they can't teach you how to be the absolute best. So 
the reason I say this is just be aware if you're spending a lot of money, don't think, okay, I'm going to spend this money and that's going to make me really good because this course does this magic thing and therefore I'll become the best. That's not going to be true. That being said, the resources that I think you need are maybe three to four tops, right? For me, I use Medify. Medify is a lifesaver. It's your go-to. Definitely get it. And because of how big Medify is, what they're able to do is provide a lot of students, including bursaries as well, by the way, a lot of students get Medify at a very cheap cost for what they offer. You know, it's a bank with over 10,000 questions. So it's extremely valuable and extremely cheap as well for what you get with bursaries involved. Now, the thing with Medify is that when you think about technique, Medify has been around for so long that it's going to have 95% of all techniques that you will ever need in the UCAT. There's no secret technique that's going to make you good, which goes back to the point that no course is going to make you excellent just because you went to the course. To improve, there is only one main thing needed after you get the basic techniques down. And that is practice. Medify has 10,000 questions, but because of how the UCAT varies in difficulties, we would recommend that you take multiple sources. So use Medify, supplement it with the 1250 UCAT book by I think it's by ISC Medical and that will give you some harder questions and lastly use the mocks that the official UCAT bank gives you right so the official UCAT bank has a bunch of questions and also the mocks that you can use and you want to get to a point where your your triage your timing your technique is almost automatic and you don't even need to think about it it's there when you need it so that's kind of how I prepared for it well, um, my technique is somewhat similar, but not that many resources. So what I did was, as he said, uh, that's a new book. They keep changing the number of questions, basically, the 1,250 yeah. UCAT uh, question mm -hmm. bank. That book, I just did it two times. I did the whole book two times. I did it to an extent when I looked at the question, I already knew what the answer was going to be. So that was kind of bad in a sense. So uh, I would recommend people to do it just once. <laughs> But beyond that book, the one thing I would recommend for people to do is uh, online test by Kaplan. This is my opinion. So I'm not vouching for them or anything, but this is my opinion. Personally, I found their tests hard. And like, I think a week before or something, I barely passed one of their tests. Maybe I was just pretty bad. But that kind of gave me an idea on how the UCAT exam was going to be like. And also the main reason why I did the Kaplan test was because they had the exact layout on how a UCAT exam would be so I kind of had a mock scenario for myself on how it should be inside like inside the uh, computer center preparing for the exam because you have to understand this exam is actually online so you have to do everything with a mouse and a keyboard so you got to be swift with it even though just clicking the mouse and just tapping the keyboard you got to be efficient at it because the another one problem with the UCAT exam is the time the content itself might be easy for many people the content might be relatively easy, but the main constraining factor with the UCAT exam is the time because they give you so little time. That is why it's mentally draining because you're forced to think fast and come down to a decision as soon as possible because the longer you delay, that means the more questions you'll actually not answer and lose out marks on. So that's one of the main constraining factors for UCAT exam. So that's why Kaplan offers, I think when I did it, at least it offered like eight online tests. So when I did that, I kind of was able to practice the timing yeah no i agree like the most important thing i can tell you is that just practice practice as much as you can which again comes with knowing your technique and starting early giving yourself enough time to become very good at these techniques and employing them 
with technique, triage, and timing. Those three T's will get you very far with the UCAT. So practice, have a variety of sources. This is also very important. I've talked to so many students that say, okay, I use Medify, but the questions were too easy compared to the actual exam. And that's why I couldn't do well on it because the exam was so much harder and my timing was off and, you know, I got distracted, etc. So just use a variety of questions, variety of types and difficulty, right? But Medify is definitely your main thing, but supplement it with other sources just so if you train with the hardest question, then the exam will be easy. If you train with the easiest question, the exam will be hard. It's just that. Now, so now that we've covered the university and the UCAT, and I know it's in very brief detail because we don't want to sort of lengthen it, maybe we'll cover it in longer episodes. But the last step to applying is the UCAS process, which is essentially the portal that British medical schools and universities use to keep track of an applicant and reply to their offers and tell them about interviews, etc. So from the graduate side of things, things are slightly different. When I applied, when I was in Newcastle, what they did was they will, Newcastle will act as sort of your UCAS center. You'll get given a special code. You normally have UCAS advisors that are full-time lecturers. They will kind of help you out with everything. But with graduate medicine, you kind of have to do a lot more on your side. You have to be the one that enters all the grades, the percentages. You have to be the one that organizes the references from the tutor at exactly the right time. You have to do a lot more of those manual things and make sure that if you are at university, use your career service. Okay, Use the resources you have. If you're currently at university, there'll be drop-in clinics for personal statements, work experience. The whole package is normally given by Newcastle University, especially at Newcastle because they have an excellent career service. And if not, if you're not currently in university, then there's also Medify. Medify has a lot of support surrounding the UCAT, not just revision, but also personal statement support, etc, etc. So essentially, if you're a graduate medic, you have a lot more on your plate in terms of having to do a lot of the UCAS input by yourselves rather than just having the schools do it. Isn't that how it works for undergraduate? The schools basically just do everything for you. Well, for me, at least, I don't recall that. I kind of remember doing everything by myself from scratch, for me, at least. Maybe really? okay. I don't know whether it's different because I'm from Singapore. I don't know. Because okay. I felt like everything was kind of done by me. The only help that I ever needed was actually getting the code. Because I think each school, each sixth form school or JC junior college school will have a code that allows you to log in to the UCAS portal. And for me, the main thing about the UCAS was actually the personal statement. Because most of the steps in a UCAS, at least for the undergraduate wise, is pretty self-explanatory. You can just do everything by yourself. There's no extra information that you actually need. But is the personal statement that's kind of always a big problem for many people. Well, that brings on to my next topic, which is actually going to be about the personal statement. Personal statement is actually relatively easy. People always think of it as a huge uh, obstacle that they have to get over because this has to be some bombastic essay that needs to impress the university. But in my opinion, I just follow this one rule, uh, just show, don't tell. I don't know whether you've heard of it. Basically, you kind of display your characteristics without actually explicitly saying. So let's say, for example, you were a leader of a camp in a jungle. So you don't write in a personal statement. Basically, I was the leader during a camp, but you would be, you could be like, you know, well, basically we were stranded in the jungle and I commanded my entire team and let them out of the forest. So when you say something like that, that kind of shows you have leadership. So I just follow the rule of show, don't tell. But beyond that, after getting the content down, what you have to do is get your friends to kind of check your personal statement. I think that's kind of very important for me because you need a third person's view on the mistakes. They can offer some incredible insights on how we could actually change your personal statement. Because for me, my personal statement was mainly vetted by my friends. I 
don't recall for help from anyone else. I just asked my friends, like, could you just give me a review on it? Basically, I made the necessary changes uh, to my personal statement. And that was about it. I don't think you should really think of personal statement as a big uh, problem that you have to uh, solve. It's actually relatively easy. Just follow the method of show, don't tell. And anyways, there are loads of exemplary personal statements out in Google. I mean, don't copy it word for word, but kind of, you know, get the whole gist of it and try to emulate it, basically. Uh, Felix, so how would you say the personal statement for postgrad at all? Is there even a personal statement? I do not know. Yeah, no, d- definitely. It's exactly the same at undergrad, except you just need to, again, make sure that some universities don't look at your personal statement. They just scan it for red flags. And other than that, they don't really use it. But other universities, they may be doing panel interviews. They might be like, we're going to read the personal statement before you come in. We're going to question you on the experiences that you've said. So there's a lot to it, but it's very tailored to the university that you apply to, which again comes back to the whole fact that research, know what you're getting yourself into and ensure that you are applying to a university that is well suited to your statistics. And lastly, this is one thing I wanted to say is that some people, when they don't get a great UCAS score or they don't do amazing in their degree, they sort of instantly say, hey, I'm not the best candidate in this cohort and therefore I don't want to apply because I don't think I'm going to get in. But what I would say is that if you meet the minimum requirements and often because of how ambiguous the UCAT cutoff score can be, right, even if it's kind of low, but you meet the minimum requirements of, you know, having a 2-1 degree predicted or whatever it is, just apply. You've got nothing to lose and everything to gain. So if you're one of those people, please, please, please put in an application. You never know where where you can end up because ultimately, if you see your friends that kind of have similar statistics to you and they actually get in in the end, it's going to be a lot of regret for you. So ensure that you apply as long as you meet the minimum requirements, you always have a shot. And yeah, I think that pretty much wraps the segment of this up. We know we've gone through it very quickly. This was a whistle-stop tour of exactly how the application process begins with. We will probably do longer episodes where we go into each step of this in more detail. So give us any feedback if you want to hear anything else about the application process. I think before we move on, uh, we got to summarize this whole episode for you guys. So anyone who's applying for postgrad medicine or undergrad medicine, just make sure you have the relevant details first, because you know different universities have different requirements. There will be loads of information out there on the net. So create an Excel sheet, organize the information in a very organize a very neat way for you to understand the information that would really help you in the long run and then from then on all you have to do is just tackle the UCAT exam which personally for me it was a bit stressful but I believe anyone can do it if you put in the practice and the time for it just got to stick true to it that's about it just remember the different components remember there are different sources out there just don't stick to one specific source or just the ISC medical book there are loads of other books, loads of other uh, question banks out there. So please do try that. And after that, all you have to do is just tackle on the personal statement is basically just describing yourself in a very academic way. That's what I would say a personal statement is all about. Don't really uh, worry about the personal statement. I think that brings on to the next component of the podcast or the usual tradition of the podcast, which is the insight of the week. So I'm going to go first this time. Okay, so this is a really quick insight on mindset. When I was doing my UCAT, the process is not actually very easy. Like I said, I encountered this problem of the mindset that I need in taking the UCAT exam. You know, is it good to be nervous? Should I be excited? Should the adrenaline be flowing? Or should I be calm and collected and cool and ready, right? Now, Bruce Lee had two great quotes that helped me with this prep. And it's just two quotes, but they meant a lot to me. So 
this is a scene from Enter the Dragon, which is one of his classic, classic movies. And the master, right, his this enlightened master that teaches him, asks him, what is your thoughts when facing an opponent? In this case, let's perceive the opponent to be the UK exam, right? He says, Bruce Lee says, before a fight, you must, the warrior must not be tense, but ready. Okay, not tense, but ready. In a similar way, when you take the UK exam, don't be nervous, you know, or overexcited or super tense. Just be ready. Just know that you've done the practice. You know what you're doing and you're going to do your best. Be ready. Don't be anxious. Don't be tense, but be ready. And secondly, this is about technique. The master asks him about technique. And Bruce Lee says, when I see or when there is an opportunity, I do not hit. It hits all by itself. And he points to like his fist, right? In this case, what I'm trying to say is that this is the level of training you need to get, you need to try and aim for. You know, if you're trying to get good at the UCAT, you need to practice until your reflexes, your technique is just there. When you see an abstract reasoning question, you, you can already pick out the distractors, you can pick out the simple boxes, and you, the technique is almost automatic. And you've trained your technique, your triage and timing, and your intuition just takes over. So don't be tense, be ready and practice until your technique, your timing and triaging is automatic. Yeah, so that was my insight of the week. Hopefully it helps some people. How about you, Harish? So my insight of this week is by this philosopher, Roman philosopher called Seneca. So basically what he says is, true happiness is to enjoy the present without anxious dependence upon the future. Well, once again, I found this to resonate with me quite a lot because I always tend to worry about what's going to happen or how I should control the future. But in that sense, I'm actually losing out on the present. So I think what he's trying to basically say is, don't think about the future, live in the now. That's what I would say to many people as well because they're constantly worried about what's going to happen next. But take a moment, take a deep breath, enjoy what you have be grateful for the moment be grateful for the fact you are alive right now that concludes this episode of our podcast for more podcasts tune in to the 10th men on spotify and itunes every single sunday if you liked our episodes please consider listening to the other episodes and possibly giving us a five-star rating on itunes you can pretty much find us on every popular platform just remember that this is a listener-centric podcast that means if you have any topics that you would like us to discuss, just tweet or DM us at the 10th men, as in the numerals on Twitter or Instagram. You can find us with the same names. If there are any further queries, you can reach us through the Gmail, official 10th men at gmail.com. And if you want to personally reach out to us, you can find me on Instagram at Felix Bajoy and Twitter with some variation of my name. How about you, Harish? And you can reach out to me through Instagram and Twitter at Proboost, I know it's a weird name, but it's pronounced Proboost, P-R-A-B-O-O-S-T. Until next time, keep safe. Tenth Men out. out.